Welcome to the Member Engagement Show with Higher Logic, the podcast for association professionals looking to boost retention, gain new members, and deepen member involvement. Each episode, we'll bring on some experts, talk shop about engagement, and you'll walk away with strategies proven to transform your organization. I'm Kelly Whalen, a marketing professional and association enthusiast, and I'm so happy you're here. And now let's start the show. Welcome back to the Member Engagement Show. Today, I'm chatting with Reggie Henry, Chief Information and Performance Excellence Officer at ASAE. Reggie has been working with ASAE since 1994 and with nonprofit organizations since 1985, and he's an expert on technology and strategy issues, and he regularly shares advice with the rest of the association community to help them improve their use and understanding of technology. So many of our listeners may actually be familiar with Reggie from his talks on other conference sessions and the thought leadership he's shared. Um, so I'm really excited to have Reggie on the podcast to pick his brain about what the association world should be thinking about in the year ahead. So like I said, um, some of our listeners might be familiar with you, Reggie, but um, would you like to introduce yourself to the folks who haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet? Well, I think you just did a great job. So I am Reggie Henry, Chief Information and performance excellence officer at ASAE. And people often ask me, what's the performance excellence part of it? They, they get the CIO part. I think the performance excellence part speaks to the role that CIOs need to be thinking about in their organizations, which is getting away from some of the pure technology things and being concerned about the overall business of the organization and how it runs effectively. So that's my uh, performance excellence piece is making sure we've got KPIs for all of our activities, make sure we have overall organizational KPIs, making sure our staff have the tools they need to measure their work effectively and overall measure the organization's work effectively. And just being a pain to the organization about things <laughs> that we ought to be getting rid of because they just don't work. Um, but now we'll have the data to, to back that up. So, And, and you introduced me as a, an expert on technology. And I, I, you know, I always cringe when I hear that because technology is changing so fast right now that I'm not sure anybody's an expert. Uh, you know, some of us study it a little bit more and try to learn a little bit more. Um, but there's so much going on right now that uh, I think that's one of the things that I, I hope most people are just being cognizant of. There's so much going on right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Reggie, because I, I feel like I as a marketing person, I feel like I try to stay up to date on particularly on social media stuff. And then sometimes I'm like, oh, actually, <laughs> I'm completely out of date on this. And kids in high school are probably more up to date than I am sometimes, which can be a little scary. So I think like jumping off of that, I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about what the big picture items are that you're thinking about or that you think associations should be thinking about in the coming year. Maybe that's technology and maybe that's other um, kind of performance excellence pieces. Yeah, I, 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 so a couple of things. One is, you know, there continues to be this gap in, in where we are right now and how we plan and where we should be planning for. You know, I look at the trajectory of change that we're facing, and that trajectory is getting steeper all the time, uh, the, the change trajectory. Um, and we keep planning based on last year's data. We've got to figure out how to 
okay, let's see three years down the road and do whatever research we need to see three years down the road and begin planning for three years down the road. Not next year down the road, three years down the road. So that's one of the things that keep me, keeps me up at night, that change gap that, that we all face. And I think that's really critical. I think back, Kelly, over the last three years and the amount of change we had in that short amount of time. Um, and, and in particular, I look at um, how we had to be differently responsive to our members from a member engagement point of view. Um, face-to-face went out of the window. It went out of the window really quickly. Um, and a lot of organizations weren't prepared for that. And I, in fact, I should say most organizations weren't prepared for that. And one of the things that scares me now is this rush back to normal. People thinking that we can rush back to where we were three years ago. Well, the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> and most organizations that I've talked to gained more eyeballs on their work during the COVID time. Um, it was virtual eyeballs, but still more eyeballs on their work. And for us to think that we can rush back to a in-person only environment, for example, both from in terms of meetings and in terms of staff, um, is ridiculous. We can't, we can't go back there. That's, that's never. So I always tell people, before you rush back to normal, uh, you may need to create a new normal. And, and that's okay. That's okay. You know, we, we are where we are. And that's, that's one of the things that scares me. You know, I see a lot of organizations struggling right now with what to do about their workplace and whether or not they should be, stay hybrid or should they bring everybody back into the office? And, you know, leadership's trying to strike that balance between employee press preference for flexibility and the desire to ensure collaboration in the organization. And it's, it's a conversation that, that needs to be had with your employees, with your board, with yourself about what's, what makes sense right now in today's world. And I think maintaining remote work environments is the way people work right now. And so we have to figure out as, as organizations, how do we best foster that kind of a hybrid work environment? I saw one statistic that said that the number of remote workers in the next five years is expected to be nearly double what it was before COVID. They say by 2025, 36.2 million Americans will be remote. That's an increase of 16.8 million from pre-pandemic rates. That's where we are. And we, we've got to adjust to it. And I think those are big things on my mind. Yeah, I really it really resonates with me what you said about like not just rushing back to what people think of as normal from before, because it is it is a new normal. It's kind of figuring out, well, what works now? Because so many things have changed. And, you know, there's also new people coming into the working world that might have different expectations of the working world and of their associations and of their membership. So you can't just like stick to what it always was. You have to be able to pivot and adjust. You know, and and one of the big areas are meetings. And I know that's one of the things that people are kind of fighting through right now um, is what to do about our meetings. People who have heard me uh, before have heard me say this is that when ASAE did its first virtual annual meeting, we had 15,000 people. Our in-person annual meeting typically draws between 4,500 and 5,500 people. We had three times more people. We invited those people into the tent, albeit virtually. We invited them into the tent. We can't push them back out of the tent right now. No, you don't want to lose them. Yeah, you can't. You can't lose those people. 
people have heard me say this before as well, is when I look at and compare the demographics from one, one of our typical meetings, annual meetings, and compare the, the demographics to that first virtual annual meeting, those people skew younger, they skew more diverse, they skew more uh, rural than urban. And all of that means to say that there's a lot of people, you know, we've got 45,000 members, 5,000 people typically come to an annual meeting. That means 40,000 people never get to do that. Those are still members, they still have needs. Um, we've got to figure out this hybrid and virtual meeting thing um, pretty quickly because we've exposed a lot of people and we can't take that back. You know, we just had last week our virtual event platform demo day. And I was pleased to see that most of the virtual event platform providers are also providing face-to-face um, -face things as well so that they can create true uh, hybrid environments for, for association gatherings. Yeah, that, that sounds really exciting too, because I feel like it's maybe we didn't want, certainly I don't think anyone wanted to go through a global pandemic, but it kind of, oh, it was eye-opening in a way, because like you said, here's all of these people that joined for virtual that we were, maybe certain associations were just ignoring them before because they thought, well, we just have these 2,000, 5,000, however many people who come to our annual event, we're just not going to be able to c connect with the other people. And then all of a sudden you do connect with them. Right. And like you said, you don't want to lose that momentum of having them engage and, and they have perspectives that we've been missing. Like that, like you said, you're, you're seeing the demographics are different than who comes in person. I think that's a really strong case to be made then for hybrid environments where you're kind of having an option that works for one group of people and another option that works for another group of people. You know, I, I often, I should have said this at the beginning of the podcast, <laughs> oftentimes my views are my views and not necessarily the views of my organization. So I'll, I'll say that now so I can speak freely about this. But, you know, I, I hope we don't become arrogant organizations and that the few dictate the future of the organization and that the few can participate in our events. I hope we don't become that. You know, you think about the cost of going to an annual meeting in some place other than where you locate it. There's travel costs and, and uh, hotel costs and God forbid you got to get babysitter costs or pet sitter costs and all of that sort of stuff that associations typically, you know, they price their event and what they price their event at. Well, that event costs, and say, say you know, the event costs $1,000 and the events in California, that's probably a $3,000 pool for some, for, for, for some individual. And quite honestly, the younger people in the organization or people who haven't reached what some organizations think are, are senior levels in the organization don't often get to participate. And we keep saying that that youth is our future, that those people who haven't been included before are our future. Well, doggone it, we got to walk the walk, right? And virtual allows us to do that in ways that we couldn't do before. So I hope people have that in mind as they're thinking about this hybrid virtual in-person conversation. Yeah, it strikes me too that, that that's where um, like online community comes in as well, like mm -hmm. having that component where people can kind of on their own schedule and on their own, whatever level of engagement they want to have, engage with other people in their association via an online community. 
Absolutely. I, I, you know, I tell everybody, thank God for higher logic during COVID, because what I saw during that time was a spike, a real spike in communication in our, all of our various communities in higher logic. And I also noticed a change in, in the, the types of conversations. Most of the time in our higher logic environment, people are connecting to figure out how do I do this better and how do I do that better? And, and there was a big surge in people taking care of each other during COVID. You know, having that environment where people realize I can go there and, and be with my, with my people. The sense of belonging that people seek when they join an association or join a community was on rapid display. And, and it just made me smile that we had that, had that there. And, and I, while we're talking about community, I think one of the things that we've got to do better is have listening posts within those communities. You know, I, I, I've shown people a thousand times different output that we get out of our community that shows the most important conversation and who's involved in those conversations. And we applied a little AI to see what's, you know, if those, are those conversations positive? Are they negative? Are they neutral? But the data that's there beyond the how many clicks and how many emails is really is gold to an association. So, you know, one of the things that I, I, I have told our staff and I tell people all the time, we've got to have listening systems. And so if any piece of any piece of technology that I'm getting in the near future, if it doesn't listen in a way that provides me insight to our members, I'm not using it. We, we need to, to start to think about this unstructured data, such as conversation, um, as um, generating insights for us um, and generating data for us that can be useful across the organization. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Reggie. I feel like I what I got to see at my association during COVID was how much you could rely on communicating or brainstorming with other people who are facing similar challenges to try to find a solution. So like if you were switching over to a virtual event, you might ask people like, well, what did you use to do? How did you foster networking? on your virtual conference? Like, how did you get people to like actually talk in the chat or like ask questions? Because it was, it was a learning curve for all of us, both those of us hosting events and those of us attending events. So, um, being able to kind of just connect with other people and say very casually, just say, Hey, I'm struggling with this. Do you have any, who else has ideas? Who's already done this? What worked? What didn't work? Like, that's tell right. me if you did something and it really didn't work so that I don't make the same mistake. I think that's incredibly valuable. And I also really love what you said about people jumping onto the community too and engaging with it, like listening and just being in there to hear. It's hard to, you know, force yourself to put aside that time during the day, I yep. feel like, to yep. log into your community. But I feel like if you make it a part of your habit, you're getting these ideas to me for like webinars or content that you should be putting out because people are already talking about what they need. And instead of you kind of saying, oh, let's all sit down as an organization and think about what people need, you can actually go in and see what they're asking for. Right? They might be saying like, hey, I really need guidelines on, you know, X, Y, Z. And then you can bring that to your program staff and say, hey, right. a thousand people are talking about this. Right. You know, and, and after this podcast, I'll, I'll show you this chart that I have. But it told me at, at the height, we had 40 different conversations going on about COVID. Because we saw that data, we could also see 
who was linked to those conversations about COVID. And we were able to see this particular person was linked to five conversations. This particular person was linked to 10 conversations. So not only were we able to see the kinds of conversations people were having around COVID, we could figure out who the thought leaders were, the people who were connected to multiple conversations. And so what we were able to do with that data is, okay, we need to do some just-in-time education around these five topics. Here are the thought leaders in the community, and here's the audience for it. And you know what happened? All of those sold out. <laughs> because you, know? you already knew they wanted it. <laughs> uh, right? Right. So, you know, that's what I mean about using these communities to know your members, not guess your members, know your members and what their needs are. The, the other thing that I think is really important is we might be heading to a bad recession at some point in time in the near future, which means the same effects of people not being able to travel, people not having budget for, you know, for things that they normally would. And communities can come into play just like they did during COVID. You know, COVID, albeit the worst thing I've ever seen in my life, was a, another example of, of disruption. And this time the disruption was people couldn't travel, people couldn't do. If we have a reception, a recession, we're going to have those same types of disruptions again. And you have to make use of your communities to one, know what people need during those times, two, comfort your members and have them comfort each other during those times. You know, so it's that. So we may be using our communities again in the very near future in the same way we did when COVID first hit. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like if there's a recession, you're also going to run into, you know, people potentially like career, making career adjustments. Um, and if you have a community or a career center, for example, where you can be offering that space, that targeted space specific to your industry, where your members can connect and say, hey, I'm looking for a job or, hey, we're, we're hiring or we're adjusting our staff, like changing the way that we're allocating staff resources. Yep. You have that dedicated space. You also have a lot of career center options have a, a professional development component too, where you can say like, well, okay, hey, I've just gotten laid off. I'm going to spend some time like improving my skill set in this area while I'm looking for a new job. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, associations have to be thoughtful uh, about what they put in front of their members. You know, again, I'm going back to this, this, this virtual or digital world we live in now. You know, if you've got members who you know have been laid off or are seeking new jobs, you have to have an online education platform to put that in front of them because they can't do, won't do face Yeah, they can't spend personal right. funds to go to a conference potentially. But you, you raise another question that I think is really important, Kelly. We have to start to know a lot more about our members. We have to, I, I think, develop a new contract with our members. Um, that says, we know you want personalized attention. We know you want personalized service. But to do that, here's the information we need to be able to provide that for you. Here's the kind of communication we need to be able to provide that for you. And we won't mess with that data. We won't do bad things with that data. We need that kind of a contract. You know, think about that if the association knew when somebody lost their job, that they knew immediately how much outreach they could do and how much help they could be in those situations. Think if we if we really track that Kelly likes to do her education online between the hours and five and nine. 
Reggie likes to do his his uh, learning face to face. Jim likes to do his learning kind of in both worlds. If we if we start to learn and know that information about our members, we can be more responsive and more agile in serving their needs. And that's what digital transformation is really about. You know, digital transformation. I've got this this uh, definition is the integration of digital technology into all areas of the business, fundamentally changing how you operate and deliver value to your members and customers. And to do that, to be digital first, to be these digital citizens, I mean, to serve by digital citizens, we need some more information from them and we need to have a new contract about how we will use that information. It can be daunting if you're at like a small association or a nonprofit, for example, and you're kind of looking at your budget, you're worried about the the recession, the potential for a recession. I think sometimes, unfortunately, one of the first things that they might think about cutting because it's a big ticket item is this like technology component of, you know, whatever vendors they have to support them. And I always have thought that that's a mistake because sure, you can cut that and then, you know, you're going to quote unquote save X number of dollars that you spend on that, but you're losing all of that infrastructure that supports you being able to do Absolutely. Like a lot to serve your members and keep your members engaged. Like I, I feel like it's a knee jerk reaction to cut vendor services like, you know, your online community platform or your your membership engagement platform, whatever you have. But unfortunately, I, I wouldn't say and I guess like I'm from being on the association side, I would say that that's not always the best choice because you lose all those tools that are helping you do more for your members with less resources. That's right. Yeah, I think we have to be be careful here. You know, one of the, the things I always hear from folks is, you know, what's the return on investment in using this? And what's the return on investment in using that? And my stock answer is, what's the return on not investing in that technology? You know, so when people say ROI, I say R-O-N-I. You tell me what we're going to lose by not investing in these particular technologies, because that's just important as important in the decision making as knowing what the returns going to be. The, the other thing I'll say, Kelly, is every technology that I've seen or been using in the last 10 years has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time. You know, there are if I look at the AMS market, for example, there's some really inexpensive things and then some very expensive things. If I look at the marketing automation market, there's some not so expensive things and some very expensive things. There's enough choice out there for people to be able to afford some of these things we're talking about. And so I'm, I'm quickly getting to the point where if I see an organization that's not sophisticated in their use of technology, it's a choice. They have made a choice. It's no longer just the, the amount of money. So we have to make wiser choices. I use and I, don't, I use a, a member engagement platform called PropFuel, for example. It's a bargain in terms of what I pay for it, in terms of being able to communicate with our members. Not marketing. It's a member engagement platform where I can ask members questions, I can answer questions, I can do a quick poll, I can do all of that stuff to engage members um, with ASAE in ways that that are not marketing related or other other kinds of things. That's an invaluable tool, especially during COVID. I think we have to be smarter about the tools um, that we do have and the ones we think we need to get rid of. 
I would agree. I, and I think that's important to kind of coming back to our conversation about new folks coming into the industries and coming into our various fields that associations support. Like, I think if you're not technologically solid, you're not going to attract the next generation of professionals in your field. Or staff. Yeah, staff. Nobody wants to be mucking around using sucky tools (laughs) to do their job, right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Nobody wants to do that. You know, and, and I think that, that that's so important that your, your your staff is a part of your community as well. You know, and I, and I look at some of the tools we have around here. Now, I'm in the middle of a pretty big infrastructure redo right now. And part of that is to make sure staff and members have modern tools to do the interactions they need to do. But we often forget about our staff. A trend in the nonprofit space, from my experience working there, is that you when you are looking to cut costs, you end up putting more more responsibility on your staff to kind of carry that weight. And I think that unfortunately that leads to burnout, which I don't know if we'll see again and with the new next generation of folks coming into the into various fields, especially the nonprofits fields. I'm just wondering if people will kind of put up with that, if that makes sense. Like I feel like a lot of people I know that are in sort of the Gen Z generation, like they don't want their work to be like this thing that bleeds into their life. I mean, it, and think about it. I, I look at this thing right here and what I can do on this phone, and it does not look like most of the technology inside of an association. This is what people are measuring their experience with us by. Their, their bar is the last great experience they had wherever they had it not just with the association. If I need to get an invoice from my association and I got to go to some antiquated website and go through 15 freaking steps to get that invoice when I can go into Amazon, go to my account and see my stuff and print it, hmm, what is my association doing for me? Um, So I I think that that brings me to another kind of conversation. We've got to create better technology ecosystems. You know, associations for so long have been, I need the big system to di- that does all the things. But we found out over time that the big systems that do all the things don't do some of the things so well. And so we end up buying pieces to augment what the big system was supposed to be doing. People have heard me tell this story before that probably four, three or four years ago, I took out two pieces of paper. And on one piece of paper, I wrote, what are all the modules that the big system has? And on another piece of paper, I wrote down, what are all the things I've had to buy because the big system didn't do it so well? And I looked at those two pieces of paper and I said, somebody should come in here and fire me. (laughs) I'm paying for half my stuff twice. I know a lot of people have that same experience. What we have to get to is realizing that There's no big system that's going to serve our members in the way that they need to be serviced um, in a more modern way. And so me, for example, and I don't know where other people are doing, I'm already in that space of using a separate registration platform. The AMS that I currently use has a community platform. I don't use it. I use HireLogic. The AMS that I have has a credentialing platform. I don't use that. I use something else. 
because those systems, there's nobody who can keep all of those things up to date in a modern way. And so I'm going for a, I won't call it a best of breed approach because I don't need everything best of breed. I'm calling it a best of need approach. That's really sharp. I like that. Best of need approach. So I'm having those systems there and a much smaller footprint to just keep track of member information and, and that sort of thing. So I can be agile. So if the registration system I'm using doesn't work for me anymore, I don't have to upload the upheave the whole AMS to get that working. I just changed the, the registration system. And so that kind of an ecosystem approach to how um, we are approaching our work will certainly make us a lot more agile. I'm trusting, and I hope people don't say I'm AMS system bashing, because I am not. Uh, AMS systems have brought this, this community a long way. But what I am trusting is, and hoping is that my industry partner uh, folks out there who develop these systems realize that in the future, people aren't going to buy these big systems and buy everything. They might want to buy four or five modules from you, and we've got to make that okay. Yeah, I think that comes back to, Reggie, what you said earlier about people comparing, they're not just comparing their experience in your association, they're comparing their experience in your association to their experiences elsewhere. And that really, to me, what you just described, the kind of module structure reminds me of this shift that a lot of people have made from having like cable, where it's a big package, to being able to specifically say, well, I want HBO and Netflix, but I don't need you know, Hulu, or I don't need NFL because I don't watch sports or whatever. And I think it's kind of like, like you said, it's if that's their experience elsewhere that they can like choose, pick and choose modules that they want to support their specific needs. And they're used to being able to do that in other places. That's right. You know, and one of the excuses we had was, well, everything has to have the same look and feel. And I'm like, come on, I got this iPad. I mean, iPhone, I probably got 50 apps on them. None of them look and feel the same way, but they all get the job done. And that's what's really important. Yeah, you need to have some basic UX and UI um, that makes sense to people. But does this thing need to look like that thing? No. Don't design for look and feel. Design for the function that this thing needs to do. Yeah. And I also think in this um, environment, it's a lot easier to like get at least a few things to look similar, like put your brand palette in it, for example. Like, I don't know a single vendor that I've used that won't let you set, like, the color scheme. So, like, as long as your logo and your brand color palette is there, I feel like people will follow. I think it's like you said, you want to focus on that user experience. So, maybe that means, for example, having strong integrations where people don't have to, like, leave one system and log in again. Maybe that's But to me, then you're focusing, like you said, on UX. Is it like you don't want someone to be like, well, I don't even know how to get into this piece from my association. I I don't know where I am. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's that that kind of stuff. Don't let people get lost in your ecosystem is what I always tell folks. And you, you touched on a great point is we are so far past the point where people are going to be happy with having to sign on to multiple things in your environment. We are way past that. If you don't have single sign-on, and there's a couple of places where I don't have single sign-on, I'm just going to say that, it drives me batty, which is one of the reasons why I'm redoing our whole infrastructure right now. But once somebody comes into your environment, they're in your environment. 
don't make them work to do what they came there to do. So there's that, this idea of, of data that needs to move throughout your environment wherever it's needed. You know, I, I call it ubiquitous data. My needs and the data about me should follow me around your ecosystem. No fair me getting to a registration form where I got to fill out all this information that you already know about me. No fair me getting at the website and you suggesting things to me that I have no freaking use for. <laughs> no fair. <laughs> I know yeah. I have the time or the inclination to pay attention to that. Or your emails. If you're emailing people and you're telling them about something that they have no interest in, I think that can be really frustrating. So I feel like that's where like integration and personalization are like really important. It's not only frustrating, it's stupid. Nobody, <laughs> nobody wants that kind of stuff anymore. You know, and you think about how much all of us are so bombarded right now. We have to get to a place where we treat individuals individually. We have to. Our systems have to be able to do that. And if we need more information from our members to do that, then we talked about that earlier. Then we have to we have to forge that kind of contract to get that information. Yeah, I feel like setting up like transparency and trust is, for me at least, in, in terms of when I was doing marketing for a nonprofit association, It for me it was, I know that people are nervous about giving their data, so we were just like very transparent and we yeah. wouldn't change how we were using that. So like we'd say, we want to get your address because we want to be able to send you this, or we want to get your interest. If you tell us what your interest areas are, we can tell you about specific webinars or specific conference sessions that you want. But if you don't tell us, we we don't know what you want and you're just going to get everything. Right. The amount of, of tension in organizations, especially during t- tough economic times, drives us to do things that we just shouldn't do sometimes. Uh, we don't have enough people coming to this particular event. So we're going to we're going to spam the heck out of everybody in hopes that we get this trickle of a few more people. And in the but you've meeting, upset all yes, of those other people yes. that are like, leave me alone. Yes. And they go to your website and they unsubscribe. What have you done then? And, yeah. What damage have you done? Yeah. I, that reminds me of how for a while, I think if you're an association and you don't have like a subscription management type page and email page where people can decide what kind of emails they want to sign up for, I feel like that's a mistake. I know I had senior management in previous jobs that were worried about letting people like unsubscribe from specific communications because they were like, well, if someone unsubscribes from our conference emails, then we won't be able to email them about our conferences. And then we lose our ability to talk to them about our conferences. And I was kind of like, but if they don't want to hear about conferences, I would rather have them unsubscribe just from that and still hear about webinars because they still want to hear about webinars than unsubscribe from everything. Like if they unsubscribe from everything, they're gone. I've lost them. I can't talk to them at all. If I give them options to say, I only want to hear from you once a week, or I only want to hear from you once a month, or I only want emails about webinars, at least then I can tell them about the stuff they might want that they might want to buy. That's right. That's right. And and I think, you know, I look at at the bounce backs that we get sometime and look at that list of people and say, I know what those people are, people are interested in. And I'm pretty sure I know that if 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 we if we had that information in front of them, they would act on it. But it's too late because we've already made them so frustrated that they've opted out. You know, one of the things I'm, I'm thinking about us doing right here is I want you back campaign. But but then 
after doing that campaign, going back to the staff and say, look, this these people um, cared enough to come back into the fold. They said they're interested in these five things. If I see anybody sending anything <laughs> other than those five things, they'll have hell to pay. <laughs> yeah, don't don't upset them again. That's that's a really good point because I feel like we have a um, a webinar about our email benchmarking report coming up, um, Higher Logic's email benchmarking report, and one of the things that the speakers might be talking about is kind of like engagement campaigns or like at yeah. least looking at your disengagement in your emails, like looking at that, those rates to see like, Oh, is this up there? Is there a whole group of people who are disengaged and then like moving those people into a different communication yep. path yep. because they're disengaged. So you've lost them on the regular path right. and you might have to move them. Like you said, to do like a, Hey, try to re-engage them campaign say, Hey, we realize you're not opening our emails anymore. What can we do? What do you, what are you looking for that we weren't giving you to try to get them back as opposed to just continuing to keep them in your regular like right. email campaigns and continuing to have them be like just not engaging. They're they're messing up your numbers, which like I I will caution. I feel like people sometimes are thinking too much about those numbers and rates instead of thinking about what those mean. Absolutely. So yes, Absolutely. your numbers will get better if you move the people out, but you also have to think about like the actual goal of trying to get them reengaged. I'm glad you said what you said about numbers because I'm not, again, my opinion sometimes is my own, not necessarily the opinion of my organization. I could give a freak about click-throughs and all of those sorts of things. Is the organization making enough money to sustain itself? That's what I'm interested in. If we set a KPI that this many people are going to come to the event, are we reaching that? Okay. I used to always use this example of, you know, suppose I was doing a membership campaign and I uh, and I sent out a membership brochure to 50,000 people. OK, I sent that membership brochure. out, And I was reasonably sure that 25,000 of those people read the brochure. Whoa, what, what a click through rate that is. Right. What if that happened? But only 10 people joined. Is that successful? No, that's not successful. So my bottom line is 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 away from those kinds of metrics into did people are people doing the thing we asked them to do? Not that they read about the thing that we asked them to do. Did they do the thing we asked them to do? Yeah, I feel like that's where metrics you have to remember that they're a tool. That that's they right. are not the end goal. Yes, right. like to me, you you might still want to look at your open and click rates because you want to see like where are people dropping off? Did they not open the email at all? Right. Did they open it and then not click on it? Because that tells me something about the message didn't resonate. Did they click on it? Then they got to the website and they didn't register because that tells me that something on the web page didn't convince them to register. Like, right. but I don't like you said the the numbers themselves, the click and open rates that's not the end goal. That's, That's not right. what I care about. I want to see, I want to use those metrics to be able to tell where am I losing people? What did, where did I say something that didn't work? Right. Like, or where did the process get too hard and it didn't work? Like, I feel like that's why being able to tell like cart abandonment and stuff is so useful. Oh, is my product just not good? Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, there's always that, right? Maybe this thing I'm trying to get people to buy um, maybe the value proposition isn't there for them to buy it. And we have to accept that and do what we need to do about it. 
you know, there's some nuance in this this stuff, Kelly, as I, as I know you know. We're so used to selling people at the event level or at the conference level as opposed to at the content level. So while I may not want to get all your spam emails about the annual meeting, but I'm interested in technology and government relations, you might not be able to get me to open an email about your conference, but you very well may be able to get me to open an email about the government relations and technology activities going on at your conference, which might get me to come to the conference. So that, that gives me chills, Reggie. That's like, that is, you're so, so right. That's, that is a really good point. So we got to meet people, not based on what we have to sell. We have to meet people on what, at where their interests are. Inherent in this conversation is all this sophistication around taxonomy and how you tag events and all of that sort of thing. But we have to get to that level of specificity. And that's what digital transformation is is all about. How do you create the infrastructure to manage your resources in a way that make them digitally acceptable to your constituencies? I feel like you and I could definitely continue talking about this all day. I'm trying to be mindful of time, though, too, because I know you're busy. So I before we kind of like run out of time. Yeah. Is there are there any like final points or things that ASAE is working on that you want the opportunity to share before we're kind of wrapping up? Sure, sure. We're doing a, a number of things. One of them is we are really keen on right now performance at organization being tied to how inclusive those organizations are. So we've got a conscious inclusion strategy and we're doing education around that. That's a level different than just diversity. We, we know we've been talking about diversity for years. Let's, let's heighten that conversation and be intentional and conscious about the things that, um, that diversity brings us and how we bring those about in organizations. So, so I'm really keen on that particular thing that we're doing. We're doing a series of demo days around all the different technologies that people can employ in their organizations. Um, we've got the marketing automation demo day upcoming soon where I'm going to make sure we dive into some of the things that we just talked about uh, to get people thinking a little bit differently about that. We've got a membership and marketing conference upcoming um, in June. And again, some of these conversations around engagement and how do you maintain levels of engagement, especially in times of recession or disruption. But people can go to the ASAE website, asacenter.org, and find out all the stuff that yeah, absolutely. I, and I'll put that in the show notes for folks. Um, I'll link to ASAE's website so folks can explore more of what they're offering. Um, and we're also really excited. Um, Reggie's joining us for HireLogic Superforum Conference in April. So we're really excited that you're going to be there. So um, any listeners who want to just hear more of what Reggie has to say, you definitely should pop in for that. And grab um, me in the halls to dig down into some of this stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And honestly, like I might try to get you on the podcast yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> this is important stuff for us to kind of change the environment that we work in and really get closer to our members. Sometimes you you have those light bulb moments talking to other people that are doing the same work where someone says something, it just like clicks for you for a moment. You're like, oh, of course, that makes perfect sense. So I think just having the space to like talk to other association folks is amazing also. 
Reggie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, your insights on these topics are very valuable and I really appreciate your time. Um, we're really, like I said, we're really excited you're joining us for Superforum in the spring. And to our listeners, don't forget to register for Superforum. The link will be in the show notes. It's April 10th to 12th, and we're hosting that in person in Washington, D.C. It's a comprehensive conference for association professionals, and there will be a whole host of sessions dedicated to helping you enhance your member experience. You'll also have the opportunity to share ideas, strategies, and challenges with your peers in the field. A lot of what Reggie and I have talked about, you know, in a challenging economy, it's more important than ever to stay on top of trends and tactics to keep your members renewing and to help your association thrive. So as you know, from supporting your own members, it's a lot more manageable to do that with a community of colleagues beside you. Absolutely. So I I hope to see folks join us at Superforum and also to join us at some of the other ASAE events that are coming up. Absolutely. I look forward to seeing everybody at Superform, that's for sure. All right. Well, thanks again, folks, and we'll see you next time. Bye.